Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Uh, good morning. I am not in uh, the journal office in Needham, uh, as you can tell with the, uh, the artificial background. I am uh, here at uh, another location, and I don't even have my Ortho Joe mug, but I do. Uh, you, oh, there you go. I got mine. I've got mine. Yeah. yeah, our, yeah. Guests, our guests should be aware that you're going to be receiving this priceless travel mug as a, a <laughs> acknowledgement of spending time with us. But what I do have, Mo, in shameless promotion is we now have Ortho Swag on the JBJS website where you can purchase shirts and uh, jackets and hats and all kinds of stuff. So this is shameless promotion of uh, the Ortho, uh, the JBJS swag. And we'll, we'll soon have, I'm sure, Ortho Joe swag. Uh, so you can go to the website, go all the way to the right, and it's an about. And then if you drop down, it's where JBJS. So uh, it it's really reasonably priced with free shipping, thanks to Bev and our our. Uh, our so that we'll start with an advertisement, if that's okay with you. Where are you? Are you are you are you uh, home? I'm in I'm in Ontario enjoying uh, looks like it's sunny out here today. I, I'm, I'm sure our guest also has probably looked out the window and seen the same sun that I'm seeing yeah. when I'm far apart. But uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to be out. And, and, and Mark, I will say one thing to you. I will encourage you to do something daring which is just unbutton that top collar. Just let it, you know, I think there you can, I think, I think you there can, oh, oh my goodness. Now that, <laughs> that is a major coup for the day. I love it. I feel no more, tie, no tie open collar. Huh? This is, no, you seem very relatable big... now. Like see, suddenly <laughs> the 20 year olds relate to you. It's great. <laughs> I don't think so. Not with this turkey neck. I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So listen, without further ado, I don't get, to say the one and only, but today we do have the one and only Professor Alan Gross, who I suspect to most listeners and those watching our, our video uh, today uh, know, know him. Either you're a mentee of him, you're a colleague of his, or you're someone who has read his countless uh, instructional courses, videos, books, publications. I could go on and on, uh, Dr. Gross, but uh, the truth of the matter is you are, there are few individuals that have left and continue to leave uh, the imprint you have. And so it's an absolute uh, honor on my part, I suspect Mark will have his own words uh, to have you with us and just sharing a conversation. And, and, and that's what we're trying to do this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, can I just say, Professor Gross had a major impact on my life. It was the first time I was visiting Toronto. I think Jim Waddell invited me to give a lecture, and Dr. Gross was taking care of the Leafs at the time. Uh, and I had young kids who were just thinking about playing hockey, and uh, Al got me tickets to the Leafs with a young Michael McKee, and we <laughs> had an evening together. And that evening, thanks to Professor Gross, led my family into being a hockey family for 20 plus years. So wow. uh, Al, thank you for that. Uh, well, you're, the, uh, you're, the right, 
It changed uh, my life. But yeah, but you're from Minnesota. You should be a hockey fan. Well, I didn't know that at the time. But you see, you you, you educated me. But uh, Mo, you want to ask the first question? Well, well actually, I was just going to say, you know, I can almost start off by saying, rather than us guess at what's on your mind, Dr. Gross, what's on your mind these days? Well, right now, I'm I'm still working. I have a clinic uh, once a week where we see new patients and old patients. I have two partners, Paul Kuzik and Oleg Safir, and uh, I help them out in the operating room. I'm lucky enough, in other words, to still be in the game at my age, but I have like a perfect setup. I've got this wonderful protected environment uh, with doing only clinical work and no, absolutely no administration at all. None, oh, zero. Heaven. <laughs> it's kind of the orthopedic surgeon's dream, but you don't get to realize that dream until you're into your 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Can well, I ask you? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, well, yeah. So, Al, you, you were the leader in the whole issue of fresh allograft transplantation. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure you spent 30 plus years working working on that and of course we've published many of your works in the journal looking back on what you originally thought was the possibilities uh, for this uh, unique approach to difficult problems what what do you think is the current status what have you learned what's the future so the, what started it way back in 19 probably about 1970 so we're talking about over 50 years ago when total knees were actually fixed hinges. I don't know whether you remember names like the baldiest knee and so forth. They were fixed hinges and they weren't very good for anybody, but in particular for young people, they were completely inappropriate. So I was working at that time with Fred Langer and Andre Citron, both of them uh, are now deceased, but um, they were kind of orthopedic surgeons that had additional training in immunology. So we worked out the immunology of cartilage cells. And we did this work starting in Toronto. And then I went to England for a year and I worked for somebody named Jeffrey Burwell, who had written a whole series of articles for the British Journal on the immunogenicity of bone. And then we worked with him on the immunogenicity of cartilage. And we kind of um, discovered that if the cartilage cells were protected by a healthy matrix, uh, they didn't stimulate an immune response, which was very good because it meant that cartilage was what we called immunoprivilege. And so that you could transplant cartilage. Now, the bone was not immunoprivileged, but uh, the bone could be replaced by host bone in a reasonable period of time. So we decided that this might be a very good option for very young people that are too young, obviously, to have one of these big hinges inserted into their knees. So we, start, we did our first one in 1973. And then this thing kept kind of ballooning. And we eventually realized that after we did a harvest, there was all this bone left over. 
So we started a bone bank. And right at that time, the American Association of Tissue Banks was founded. And we were kind of part of that. And all of the criteria for bone banking were established. Uh, and we became part of that. And as a result of that, we got into the hip revision business. Because just about that time, the total hips were starting to return to be revised. And everybody recognized that bone restoration of bone stock was really important. So we got involved in revision arthroplasty of the hip at the same time as the orthopedic oncologist, particularly at the Mass General with Henry Mencken, started to do limb salvage uh, for sarcomas. Right. And they, the chemotherapy that enabled limb salvage for sarcomas was being done in Boston. So those two programs, the oncology program and the hip revision program were kind of running parallel to each other, plus the fresh osteochondral allografts. And so we just had really marvelous timing, you know, like the timing of starting all this stuff worked out well for oncology, for fresh osteochondral grafts and for bone banking. So we were very fortunate. And we initially had osteochondral allografts, at least patients sent to us from all over the world. And um, for these fresh osteochondral grafts, either a condyle or a tibial plateau and so forth, and then eventually hips. And, um, but then it caught on in other centers, particularly in the US, about 50% of our patients were American initially, and then the American surgeons started to have access to fresh tissue like we did. And um, so now we still are, we do about somewhere between 15 and 20 a year, uh, but now all of our patients are Canadian patients rather than from all over the world because the program is, you know, it's kind of an established option for the young patient with a nice isolated, usually post-traumatic defect. So, and where is it going? Yeah, yes, uh, where's it going? <laughs> it's going like the type of graphs that we do are for big, big defects, you know, like osteochondritis desiccans or a tibial plateau fracture, um, where we do either a plug or if it's an uncontained defect, then we have to, you know, fix the graft with screws and so forth. But the researchers have, you know, have taken chondrocyte transplantation, where they're just transplanting chondrocytes, basically, autologous chondrocytes or even allograft chondrocytes, and just going after very small defects. So if somebody's having an arthroscopic examination because they have pain in their knee, and they discovered a area of cartilage damage in a knee in a young patient, those patients become candidates for cartilage cell transplantation. And that's kind of in the sports medicine world, not the arthroplasty world. So now there are so many different modalities of cartilage cell transplantation. It's become a major industry around the world. And it's all because of these kind of basic researchers do the work, show how you can make chondrocytes survive. And then they've developed matrixes, 
matrices that they can transplant them onto. And that's become like a, a whole new world of orthopedics. It's not even orthopedics, it's sort of basic science in sports medicine. So that's what it's evolved to. There's the bulk grafts are still being done, particularly as plugs, but there's these small resurfacing carton cell grafts that are being done even more. So where it's going is, is to have these cells available on the shelf so that if you have an incidental finding in the knee that's being arthroscoped, you can actually deal with it on the spot. And so one of our projects is looking at how we can preserve chondrocytes, how we can preserve cartilage on the shelf for prolonged periods of time. So the research is showing, particularly from the University of Missouri, that these graphs can be stored for up to three months at room temperature. So eventually, I could see where they're going to be storing actual chondrocytes in solution on the shelf, not even at room temperature, but in these special storage media where they can store them for up to three months. So during a regular arthroscopic examination, these things could be actually implanted. Well, you've had many contributions to the field of orthopedics, uh, Al, but this has got to be right up the top of the list. Uh, all these uh, decades of, of work on this on this uh, topic. So, yeah, it's been one of our favorite, yeah, uh, our favorite projects. It's like not something that we do every day, no. but we still do between fifteen and twenty a year, and they're very. It's very rewarding. The surgery is relatively straightforward yeah. and uh, it led to, you know, the, the, the most rewarding thing is it led to other people doing it. Yeah. So we weren't doing it in isolation, but we realized that we had made a contribution when we saw other centers starting to do cartilage transplant. It's, it's actually uh, fascinating that you bring this up. I was just on the weekend in Montreal with a number of uh, arthroscopists, exactly. And the issue they said is, you know, we have individuals who are doing ACL repairs on, we go in and we find an incidental cartilage defect. Now, a lot of them are getting MRIs before, so they're not getting completely surprised. But they said, you know, for the asymptomatic cartilage defect, you know, we want something on the shelf that we can immediately apply or have something available uh, rather than, you know, sort of the large planning. So you're right, there was discussion of scaffolds and the word stem cells came up, but I am curious about your take because right now in Canada, you know, the word stem cells, really the access to stem cells in any meaningful way comes from uh, research and, you know, they aren't widely used in Canada. Do you think that's going to change in, in the near future? I mean, I guess there's there's a threshold of evidence we're going to need. How optimistic are you well, about that? You know, I'm talking to the right two guys <laughs> uh, because, as you know, the the data is still not there with regards to stem cells and just implanting them into joints. And also, it's extremely expensive. Like it's, I know in Toronto what they're charging, and it's out. It's actually outrageous, if I could say so. So the data isn't there yet. But yeah, stem cells are pro probably <laughs> something that could happen in the future. 
But there's also a lot of cartilage cells that can be harvested almost like stem cells. You know, they do these fetal, they get cartilage from dead fetuses. It sounds terrible, but they do that and they grow them and they're like embryonic, embryonic cartilage cells. And they can be, they can go through generations of them. So you can see that there might be like these, like you mentioned salmon before, like salmon farms, there could be chondrocyte farms where people are actually growing these things. Right, but right. the big trick is to be able to keep them on the shelf. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Got it, got it. And uh, Mark, just to clarify, the salmon was mentioned in context to Robin Richards inviting <laughs> me to go fishing with him in Lake Ontario. We were yeah. chatting a little bit about, yeah. uh, you know, just our pastimes. And actually, speaking of that, Dr. Gross, what um, outside of the joy of work, what, what what else gives you joy these days in, in life? And then what, what kind of things are you up to? Well, it, I, you know, um, maybe you don't know, but I have uh, a, a relatively young family. So I have 15-year-old twins, hmm. and they're both very athletic, which means that I've become a part-time Uber driver. <laughs> to put it mildly, like I am constantly driving, and they do different sports, and they do them almost every day. So I am mm -hmm. constantly driving. Between me and my wife, we are driving all the time. So that keeps us very busy. But we also have a cottage on Lake Simcoe, which is a very large lake in Ontario. It's not one of the Great Lakes, mm -hmm. but it's a large lake. And um, we go there on weekends whenever the kids aren't doing their sports. And so we get there and it's winterized. So we get there a fair amount of the time. And the kids, besides it being a summer home in the winter, it's very close to skiing and so forth. So we have a, a very good life. But for a guy of my age, which is 86, before you ask, <laughs> um, it's a very busy life. Very busy. It is. And have you? I have these young partners, Sophia <laughs> and Kuzik, who allow me to take part. You know, so we work as a team. Yeah. Which is really rewarding, and it's so much fun. You know, one of the advantages of working as a team, when you have a complication, it's almost like you you have a psychotherapy team. Like we share <laughs> our complications. Yeah. So you only get like one third of the guilt, which is terrific. You don't lie awake at night worrying about these things as much as I used to. So, And also solutions to the complications and to the difficult cases. We do a lot of uh, revision hips and, mm. and revision knees because of the bone bank, which all started yeah. because of the fresh osteochondrolograph. So one thing kind of led to the other. It was a very natural evolution. And as you guys know, everything in life is timing. And uh, you guys had excellent timing when it came to epidemiology. I mean, I, you, were, I was, you were there I was, at the right time when people started to look at evidence. You know, it's so funny because like the storyline I've always, and I think you highlighted it again today, is there is an element of just timing and luck. Like it was lucky in some ways that in my own life, you know, evidence-based medicine at McMaster was just starting around 94. And, you know, Gordon Guyatt had just coined that term in 1990. I happened to show up in 94. Pure luck and coincidence. Now, doors open and you take advantage of it. I imagine there have been many, many doors in your life that were opened 
Um, and you know, when you, when you're a resident or your junior faculty looking at Professor Alan Gross, you think that you were from day one had been destined to do this work. I get the impression though you were destined to fall in love with this work, but the work somehow kind of timing for you just happened at the right time in your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like when we started doing the grass, then bone banking started. And we had all this bone that we didn't know what to do with because we only needed a little bit of it. And um, so we became part of all that. And then we got into revision hips and, and the design of the implants that were used for revision hips and doing lots of revisions. And then, of course, doing lots of arthritis. So we became arthroplasty surgeons, uh, even though we, we could have become sports medicine surgeons, but we didn't. We became arthroplasty surgeons because we were in that decade where sports medicine hadn't evolved to the point where they were doing cartilage transplant. Oh, so the timing was good because I would rather do this than be a sports medicine guy. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Well, we, uh, Mo and I speak for the entire uh, orthopedic community uh, to thank you for your decades of contributions to the field and you're continuing to make contributions and we very much appreciate your spending a few moments with us uh, to walk down memory lane a bit. And uh, as I said earlier, you can expect the priceless ortho Joe mug uh, in the mail and uh, we're going to let we're going to let I you can't go. Wait. <laughs> we're going to let you go. Because I'm sure you've got to drive to some sports event, or, or you're late to clinic, one or the other. So no, I'm, I'm fine. But I'll tell you, um, I got those leaf tickets for you <laughs> by the guy that took care of the leaves. At oh, that time, wow. I was taking care of the Blue Jays. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I was with the Blue Jays for 35 years, oh. and that was like before these twins came along. That was my hobby. <laughs> the Blue Jays, and we managed to get a couple of World Series in and stuff like that. Uh -huh. So, baseball was my my other passion. But I knew the guy that was taking care of the leaves, and uh, I had a certain amount of leverage so I could get you those hockey tickets. Well, I'm grateful. Like I said, it uh, totally changed the life of our family. And well, we're so we're, we're big hockey fans. My son plays hockey, so we're very big hockey fans. Yeah, if you live in Toronto, how can you not be? I mean, that's that yeah. uh, you get kicked out of town if you're not uh, waiting for the next Leaf Stanley Cup. Like yeah, I've been waiting for a long time. Unfortunately, <laughs> every year, every year is going to be the year. Every year is yeah. going to be the year. Yeah, this year is going to be the year. You're right. <laughs> okay. Well, on that on that optimistic note, we're going to let you go. And thanks again for spending the time with us. Hey, you know Appreciate what? Thanks we'll do this again in about five years. How's okay. that? Okay. Awesome. We're putting it on Can't the wait. books. Okay. Take care. All right. Have a good day. Okay. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.